0: Hello, and welcome to the final report on January 6th, a reading. I am your host, Robert Keniston. This is episode six. In this episode, we'll begin chapter two and learn about Trump's quest to just find 11,780 votes. Reading this portion of the report will be James Babin. So, without further ado, Let's begin.
1: Chapter two, I just want to find 11,780 votes. In a now infamous telephone call on January 2nd, 2021, President Trump pressured Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger for more than an hour. The president confronted him with multiple conspiracy theories about the election none of which were true. Raffensperger and other Georgia officials debunked these allegations, one after another, during their call. Under Raffensperger's leadership, Georgia had, by that time, already conducted a statewide hand recount of all ballots. That recount and other post-election reviews proved that there was no widespread fraud and that voting machines didn't alter the outcome of the election. This should have put President Trump's allegations to rest. But, undeterred by the facts, the president badgered Raffensperger to overturn the Georgia results. President Trump insisted that the ballots are corrupt and someone was shredding them. He issued a thinly-veiled threat telling Raffensperger it is more illegal for you than it is for them because you know what they did and you're not reporting it. Of course, the Georgia officials weren't doing anything illegal and there was nothing to report. Even so, President Trump suggested that both Raffensperger and his general counsel, Ryan Germany, could face criminal jeopardy. That's a criminal. That's a criminal offense, and you can't let that happen, the president said. That's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyer. I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. And then the president made his demand. So look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have the president told Raffensperger. It was a stunning moment. The president of the United States was asking a state's chief election officer to find enough votes to declare him the winner of an election he lost. Raffensperger saw the president's warning to him on January 2nd as a threat. I felt then, and I still believe today, that this was a threat, Raffensberger wrote in his book. And this threat was multifaceted. First, the president notifying Raffensperger and his team of criminal activity could be understood as directing the law enforcement power of the federal government against them. While Raffensberger did not know for certain whether President Trump was threatening such an investigation, he knew Trump had positional power as president and appeared to be promising to make my life miserable. But the threat was also of a more insidious kind. As Raffensberger wrote in his book, others obviously thought it was a threat too because some of Trump's more radical followers have responded as if it was their duty To carry out this threat. Raffensperger's deputy held a press conference and publicly warned all Americans, including President Trump, that President Trump's rhetoric endangered innocent officials and private citizens and fueled death threats against Georgia election workers, sexualized threats directed towards Raffensperger's wife, and harassment at the homes of Georgia election officials. The January 2nd call promised more of the same. The upshot of President Trump's message to Raffensperger was, do what I ask or you will pay. President Trump's phone call with Secretary Raffensperger received widespread coverage after it was leaked, but Georgia was not the only state targeted by President Trump and his allies. The call was one element of a larger and more comprehensive effort, much of it unseen by and unknown to the general public, to overturn the votes cast by millions of American citizens across several states. As Chapter 1 explained, The root of this effort was the big lie. President Trump and his allies publicly claiming that the election was rife with fraud that could have changed the result, even though the president's own advisors and the Department of Justice told the president time and time again that this was not the case. But in parallel with this strategy, President Trump and his allies zeroed in on key battleground states the president had lost, leaning on Republican state officials to overrule voters, disregard valid vote counts, and deliver the state's electoral votes to the losing candidate. Had this scheme worked, President Trump could have, for the first time in American history, subverted the results of a lawful election to stay in power. His was a deeply anti-democratic plan to co-opt state legislatures through appeals to debunked theories of election fraud or pure partisan politics to replace Biden electors with Trump electors so President Trump would win the electoral vote count in the joint session of Congress on January 6. Had state officials gone along with President Trump's plot, his attempt to stay in power might have worked. It is fortunate that a critical mass of honorable officials withstood President Trump's pressure to participate in this scheme. They and others who stood up to him closed off avenues for thwarting the election so that by noon on January 6, President Trump was left with one desperate final gambit for holding on to power, sending his armed, angry supporters to the U.S. Capitol. 2.1. The Electoral College and President Trump's attempt to subvert it. When Americans vote for a presidential candidate on election day, they are actually casting votes for that candidate's proposed presidential electors to participate in the electoral college. After a state certifies its election results and announces a winner, it also issues a certificate of ascertainment which contains the names of duly chosen electoral college electors. The electors whose names appear as having received the most votes on a certificate of ascertainment will go on to participate in the electoral college, while a losing candidate's proposed electors have no role to play and no standing to participate in the electoral college. This happens after every presidential election, in each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia. This process comes from a clause in the U.S. Constitution that gives states the power to choose electoral college electors according to state law. That clause says that each state shall appoint electoral college electors in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. All 50 states have decreed that electors will be selected by popular vote. Tuesday, November 3rd was the day established by federal law as Election Day in 2020. Each state's rules had been set, and courts had weighed in when certain rules were challenged. Polls opened around the country and votes came in, whether in person or via the mail, according to each state's laws. Over 154 million voters cast votes according to the rules in place on Election Day. President Trump lost. He and his supporters went to court, filing long-shot legal challenges to the election, But they failed in courts around the country, before judges appointed by executives of both parties, including President Trump himself, and for those judges who were elected that are members of both parties. Rather than abiding by the rule of law and accepting the court's rulings, President Trump and his advisors tried every which way to reverse the outcome at the state level they pressured local and state elections officials to stop counting votes once it became clear that former Vice President Joseph Biden would prevail in the final count. They pressured governors, secretaries of states, and local officials not to certify the popular vote in several swing states that former Vice President Biden had won. And... When that did not work, they pressured state legislators to disregard the vote counts and instead appoint Trump electors to vote in the Electoral College. This fundamentally anti-democratic effort was premised on the incorrect theory that Because the Constitution assigns to state legislatures the role of directing how electoral college electors are chosen, which every state legislature had done before the election, giving the power to the people at the ballot boxes, then the state legislatures could simply choose Trump-Pence electors after seeing the election results. In effect... President Trump and his advisors pushed for the rules to be changed after the election, even if it meant disenfranchising millions of Americans. 2.2 The Plan Emerges More than a month before the presidential election, The media reported that the Trump campaign was already developing a fallback plan that would focus on overturning certain election results at the state level. An article published on September 23, 2020 in The Atlantic explained, according to sources in the Republican Party at the state and national levels, the Trump campaign is discussing contingency plans to bypass election results and appoint loyal electors in battleground states where Republicans hold the legislative majority. Ominously, the same reporting predicted almost exactly what would later come to pass. With a justification based on claims of rampant fraud, Trump would ask state legislators to set aside the popular vote and exercise their power to choose a slate of electors directly. Numerous senior Trump campaign advisors, including campaign manager William Stepien, deputy campaign manager and senior counsel Justin Clark, and President Trump's lead attorney, Rudolph Giuliani, all told the select committee that there was indeed a state-focused strategy, or track to challenge the outcome of the election, which included pressing state legislators to challenge results in key states and to appoint new Electoral College electors. You know, in the days after Election Day, later in that first week, bleeding into the second as our numbers and data looked bleaker, internally we knew that. Stepien told the select committee. As the Associated Press called the race, I think some surrounding the president were looking for different avenues to pursue. That's when Stepien remembered the concept first coming up. Those around President Trump were pushing this idea and pushing it hard. Just two days after the election, President Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr. forwarded to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows a suggestion that state assemblies can step in and vote to put forward the electoral slate Republicans control Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, etc. We get Trump electors. And so We either have a vote we control and we win, or it gets kicked to Congress 6th of January. Chief of Staff Meadows responded, working on this for Pennsylvania, Georgia, and North Carolina already. Within one week after the election, Meadows had also sent or received several other similar messages the state legislature can take over the electoral process mark meadows text to georgia state senator marty harbin agreed mark meadows text to a different sender who suggested that the trump administration should get that out there if they were seriously considering the state legislature strategy i will tell him mark meadows text to a sender who suggested president trump start building momentum for the state legislatures. I love it. Mark Meadows text to Representative Andy Biggs, who relayed what he acknowledged as a highly controversial idea to have Republican legislatures appoint electors. Why can't the states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and other Republican-controlled state houses declare this is B.S., where conflicts and election not called that night, and just send their own electors. I wonder if POTUS knows this. Former Secretary of Energy Rick Perry to Mark Meadows. Another White House official exploring such a plan less than a week after the election was Vince Haley, deputy assistant to the president for policy, strategy, and speech writing. He suggested, imagine if every red state legislature slated zero electors. It would reveal that we are a red country. To do this, we would have to jack this to the nth degree as a battle of tribes. Haley pushed this strategy in several texts and emails, including to assistant to the president and director of presidential personnel, Johnny McEntee, an individual Haley characterized as a very trusted lieutenant for President Trump, a direct conveyor to boss with ideas and at his side almost all the time. For Haley, however, purported election fraud was a way to justify President Trump friendly legislatures changing the outcome of the election, but there were other reasons for doing so too. Election fraud was only one rationale for slating Trump electors, Haley told McEntee. And we should baldly assert that state legislators have the constitutional right to substitute their judgment for a certified majority of their constituents if that prevents socialism. Haley added, independent of the fraud, or really, along with that argument, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Madison, Wisconsin, and Lansing, Michigan, do not have to sit idly by and submit themselves to rule by Beijing and Paris, proposing that radio host rally the grassroots to apply pressure to the weak-kneed legislators in those states. McEntee replied, Yes, and then, Let's find the contact info for all these people now. Hours later, Haley sent him names and, in most cases, cell phone numbers for top GOP legislators in six states, suggesting for POTUS to invite them down for a White House meeting. The president would later call several named in that message, including Rusty Bowers and Karen Fan in Arizona, Lee Chatfield and Mike. Shirky in Michigan, and Jack Corman in Pennsylvania. Others weighed in with the president about a state-focused plan, too. Some were already looking ahead to January 6th. On November 8th, former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich met President Trump at the White House. Two days later, he sent a follow-up note to the president's executive assistant titled, Please give this to POTUS, Newt. It suggested that the only way Trump loses is rigged system and added that President Trump could encourage GOP legislators elect not to send in electors, forcing a House vote by state delegations on January 6th that Gingrich expected President Trump would win. Meadows replied, Thanks, Speaker. Newsmax CEO Christopher Ruddy had President Trump's ear and reportedly spoke with him by phone at least four times before December. He forwarded a memo to other close advisors of the president recommending that the Trump team persuade one or more Republican-led chambers in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and even Minnesota to pick a separate competitive state slate of electors, which the memo predicted might turn January 6th into a catfight in Congress wherein VP Pence is presiding. Attorney and conservative activist Cleta Mitchell was recruited by Mark Meadows immediately after the election to assist the Trump campaign's legal work. By November 5th, she emailed Dr. John Eastman of Chapman University, who would later play an outsized role pushing a theory about what Vice President Pence could or couldn't do during the January 6th Joint Session of Congress that is detailed in Chapter 5 of this report. In her email, Mitchell asked Eastman to write a memo justifying an idea that state legislators reclaim the power to pick electors and asked rhetorically, Am I crazy? Dr. Eastman wrote the memo entitled The Constitutional Authority of State Legislatures to Choose Electors and sent it along for sharing widely. According to the Office of Presidential Scheduling, President Trump was scheduled to meet in the Oval Office on November 10th with Morgan Wartzler and John Robeson, Texas entrepreneurs close to former Governor Rick Perry. The next day, Wartzler tweeted that he was in Oval yesterday and months later wrote that, I told whole Trump team in Oval that state legislatures can choose the electors no matter what current state law or state courts say. After this apparent meeting, John Robeson sent the White House an email entitled Urgent Follow-Up to our Tuesday meeting with POTUS that he asked to be printed out for the president to explain the move forward plan for what was discussed. The email stated that President Trump liked the plan we presented to use a parallel path of state legislators, and the attached memo proposed hundreds of briefings for state lawmakers by President Trump's surrogates and members of the Freedom Caucus. The email envisioned President Trump hosting Four-plus monster rally trials with tens of thousands of Trump voters staring up at the GOP state legislators from their districts who alone control which slate of electors their states will submit. A proposal that seemed to foreshadow the state hearings that Rudolph Giuliani and President Trump championed less than a month later. Deputy White House Chief of Staff Dan Scavino called Robeson's message bat-shit-crazy. But the president's executive assistant, who was asked to print it for the president, wrote, printed, and may have shared it with the president anyway. By then, President Trump was engaged. According to Stepien, his campaign manager, The state-focused strategy came up in a November 11th meeting among close advisors as something to consider. At that point, the election had been called, but the president was very interested in keeping Pathways to Victory open. So Stepien believed the president found the concept intriguing. Then, the plan just started happening even though it was something Steppian, honestly, kind of dismissed at hand, characterizing it as one of the crazy, crazier ideas that was thrown out in and around that time. But not everyone was convinced. On November 19th, the prior Republican presidential nominee, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, issued a harsh public condemnation of President Trump's open and notorious efforts to overturn the election. Having failed to make even a plausible case of widespread fraud or conspiracy before a court of law, the president has now resorted to overt pressure on state and local officials to subvert the will of the people and overturn the election. It is difficult to imagine a worse, more undemocratic action by a sitting American president. Senator Romney was right to identify and decry President Trump's actions. And yet, in hindsight, it is clear that the effort to pressure state and local officials by the Trump team was only just
0: getting started. This podcast has been a production of 2008 Studios under a contract with SAG-AFTRA. Casting support services has been provided by Breakdown Services. The recordings herein are property of 2008 LLC. Any inquiries to collaborate or contact can be sent to info at 2008.com. That's info at 20-08.com. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please feel free to share this podcast and of course please subscribe to be updated on future episodes thank you for listening